Welcome to We Drink and We Know Things, a weekly podcast doused in alcohol and lit with knowledge. Clinkies! Hello. Hello. What's up, everybody? How you doing? My fucking episode 45. 45. 45 times. That's nuts, man. That is nuts. That's crazy. Uh, I'm Andrea. I'm Tom. This is We Drink and We Know Things, the podcast. Mm-hmm. If you're new here, Which they if you're did. not, welcome back. Welcome on back we now. We appreciate you coming back. It's going to be another episode. Yep. Yep. We also have, you know, other, we've, we have, we've had like scores of episodes, but they're like full episodes, 45 Yeah, there's some other times. fun things you can go listen to, like Florida Man Friday. Yes. Yum. Florida Man Friday, y'all. <laughs> so what's new with you, man? I mean, we live together and I That's see you true. pretty much every day. That's why these so. conversations are always so fucking awkward. It's like, <laughs> you fucking know how I am, you dipshit. <sighs> well, I hope everybody had a good Super Bowl, if you care about that thing. We yeah, don't we care don't about it. give a fuck. I it was also my brother-in-law's birthday, so... Mm-hmm. We had a chili kind of like, cook-off. Yeah, so it was kind of like a... We had a birthday party slash... Whatever they left before the Super Bowl started. I but. fell asleep immediately, right at kickoff. Yeah. Dozed you out. Did. Just you did. Died. We did watch the halftime show. I forgot about that. That the, was a good... I fucking thought it was dope. Shakira and Jay. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, I just... I kept seeing everybody's comments about like... People up in how, arms. How did J-Lo keep... Her vagina in that little sliver of <laughs> material, which she like vaginally slid toward the <laughs> fucking screen. She has a staff of people oh, that yeah. are just in charge of keeping the flaps keeping in. Keeping that stuff in. Keeping the flaps in, yeah. <laughs> Gross. Uh, it was no, good, I thought it was good. It was, good. It was high energy. I mean, it was they, dope. they both look fucking amazing. Yeah, dude, they look great. For their, I mean, not for their, everybody, I mean, not they're not yeah. old by any means. They look great. At, you could tell me any age and I would be like, okay, I could see it. Yeah, yeah they, look, they look good. Yeah, they're great. Her, Shakira's little weird tongue thing where she was like, blah, blah, blah. I heard that's like, um, oh man, like it's it has some kind of cultural oh, for real? meaning. Oh. Like, cause she's Colombian and maybe it was something like, I don't know, man. I don't know enough to talk on it. I just saw everybody they kept comparing her to a goat. <laughs> 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 like with the tongue and stuff. Silly. Oh, but man. that, I mean, we didn't, well, we didn't watch. We watched like nope. the first few minutes just to I'm be not like, a, nice. I'm not a sports dude in general. I don't know. Sure. You're, you're probably more of a sports person than I am. I just like college football. Yeah, I mean, I know I know what stuff is happening. Just because I went to college, so I, I had that, yeah. like, root for my team thing. Sure. So I watched it. You know, and I went to, I had season tickets when I was mm-hmm. in college, so, you know. I remember that. We had some good days there. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, I can tell you what's going on for the most part, but I don't give a shit. Like, I don't, I also don't have the patience yeah. to sit around and watch. And more, like, I, it's just, I, oh, I don't, yeah. I'd rather be fucking off playing a video game for but that much time. We live in Kentucky, and there we yeah. don't have an NFL team or any, I mean, there's not. No, we're pretty much a college like town. Like, if we had an NFL state. team, I would probably watch the NFL. Like, if yeah. I had a team to root for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel passionate about any of the other teams. I think, about the, any of the teams. I think the closest ones we get is, like, the Colts. We have sent out some good players from here, though. We certainly have. We yeah. certainly have. So, this is not a sports podcast. No, it's definitely, certainly definitely not. not. But That's the, like a weird term. I was going to bring up the Jason Momoa commercial. That oh, was, like, one of the only shit. ones we really saw. So funny and creepy as fuck, too. Jason Momoa, like... 
came in and like took off his muscles and his abs and his hair. And it was so weird. He was like the lankiest. Everyone thought he was fuck. gonna be. It was gonna be like a sexy Jason Momoa yeah. commercial. And, Can't wait to get home and unwind. And then he takes his abs so out. So weird. Takes his arms off. It's it was funny cool that his actual wife was in it with him though. Yeah, she was spotting him. Yeah, so funny. Hilarious. That's cool. Yeah, man. I don't, there wasn't really any other. The only other one I can remember was the um, Brian Cranston Mountain Dew one. Where uh-huh. he, he like uh-huh. acted like the dude from The Shining. The Post Malone ones were good. Yeah, don't don't yeah. Rem- don't know. Post Malone, where he got like the Dorito tattoo on his face. Nope, don't remember. Yeah, right. I was I, I, not caring about the Super Bowl. Had a fair amount to drink that day. Oh, buddy. Remember, remember that? Buddy. <laughs> and my sister brought a bunch of rum, rum yeah. gummy bears. Yeah. And Which I ate like a kid in a candy store. I mean, it was amazing. I did. I did. I ate like them like there was no alcohol in them. And we had brunched. We had brunched that morning. Yep. We yep. had done all kinds of things. And uh, I think they hit me pretty hard. It all hit you next day yeah. it was next day level hangover oh, i've never my. seen you that hungover it before maybe awful. since before like maybe your bachelorette party but never since then um it was actually hilarious when because when we were at brunch we went to a different place because i think we talked about the bad experience we had where we found yeah, an yeah, aunt in your yeah, mimosa last time the first thing our waitress says to us well if you like brunch you should try and you said should try the, pla- the, place. the place where we, had, we were like um which shook, had me shook if place. they were like this place is good <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, this place is better. They didn't put yeah, ice in our mimosas. It was a good. That's gonna be the new spot. It's cheap. Yeah. We get some nice eats. It's Two nice. dollar mimosas. Come what on, is with up? it. Yeah. <sighs> Here's ten bucks. Tell, tell me when I'm cut off. Yeah. Is that place local? Or is that place a chain? No, I think it's a chain. I think it's a big. I think it's a big chain. What's it called? I already forgot. Oh, fucking something house. Yeah. Pub house. Pub. Pub something? house. No, it's know. not fucking pub house. Oh. Rick House? It's not Rick House. Be a cool Rick name House? Yeah, it's where you store bourbon. The Brick House. Rick, I was fucking <laughs> close as shit and you know it. You can't even clown me. I was so close. She. Rick House. She. <laughs> you just dropped the B. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to open a bar called Rick House, so that's a brilliant mm. idea. Morty. Morty. Welcome to my Rick House. <laughs> also, uh, I think you're going to, I think you, I think you take it, I think you get it popping today. Yeah, I do. You go first. Yeah. Are we just going to, we going to do Yeah, I think we both have long ones i got a girthy boy we're not gonna split it up well you're not the one editing this so i'll be the judge of that but but probably probably gonna be a a girthy boy we're gonna leave it together because we just split up the last one so yeah we were lazy yeah but i guess i'm ready to get into it yeah let's do it all right all right yay so I'm not gonna give you the like what this is known by till the end but you never do i don't know why you even preface that anymore you never you never do that's true but this is a crazy story. Oh. I know. We never do those. What's new? But it's... I don't... I guess you would label it like a mystery. Oh, buddy. Maybe not. I fucks with a mystery. I or, fucks with a mystery. It's more complex than that, but I can't say anything else, so... Okay. I'm just gonna dive right in. All right, let's get it. I'm gonna be telling you about the Gibbons twins. The Gibbons twins. Yes. The twins Gibbons. June and Jennifer were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons. Aubrey is actually the, the dad. They're men, Aubrey's. That's what Drake's name is, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I, I think His I heard that like on Aubrey, something I, I listened think, to, actually. actually. Something like, like Drake? The mm. Gibbonses, that's hard to say, moved from 
Barbados to the United Kingdom in the early 1960s as part of the Windrush generation, which I had to look up. I didn't know what that was. Yeah, I'm not familiar like, with that. After World War II, many African Caribbean people migrated to North America and Europe, especially to the United States, Canada, um, France, and the Netherlands as a result of the losses during the war, the British government began to encourage mass immigration from the countries of the British Empire and Commonwealth to fill shortages in the labor market. Wow. I did not know that. So That's I, crazy. I, I didn't want to just like leave it hanging with sure. the Windrush yeah. generation. That's really interesting. I didn't know what that was. Huh. I've never Glo- heard that before. Yeah, no, me either. So Gloria was a housewife and Aubrey worked as a technician for the Royal Air Force. Oh, that's a good gig. Yeah. They had a daughter, Greta, who was born in 1957. Then they had a son, David. David. I knew that was going. Oh, David. Born in 1959. June Allison and Jennifer Lorraine Gibbons were born at an RAF. I guess that's the Royal Air Force. Royal Air Force. Hospital in Aden. Aden. A-D-E-N. In the Middle East on April 11th, 1963. June arrived first at 8.10 a.m. But Jennifer, born 10 minutes later, seemed to be the stronger twin. More alert and physically robust. Oh, just came out doing push-ups. Hey, didn't you do that? I did, <laughs> actually. From what I'm, that's what my meathead of a dad says. Well, you were a 12-pound baby. I was a big boy. Jesus. Their mother, Gloria, would end up calling them Twinnies as her nickname for them. Oh, Twinnies. The twinnies. That's sweet, isn't it? Actually, they, they're, they were from Barbados, so they would have a different accent. No, nope, I don't. That. <laughs> more of like a Caribbean. Yeah, more like Our a Caribbean mom, accent. That kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. Then, um, lastly, they ended up having a baby sister, Rosie, who was born in 1967. Oh. Okay. Okay? It's about my parents' age, I think. It's close to my parents' age. Oh, okay. Maybe they knew each other there in England. Oh, maybe. Because the family soon relocated first to England, and then in 1974 to, all right, give me, I hope I'm saying this right, Harver Ford West. Okay. Harver Ford West. It's like Harvard Ford West. Harvard West, Wales. Okay. 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 Like most twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons had an innate bond with each other. They started talking really late in life, though. Even as toddlers, they only spoke three or four words at the most. Okay. And when they finally did speak, their words came out garbled, and they chirped and squeaked to each other. What? Yeah. Um, so they had like their own little thing going enunciate, on. Enunciating the, like, the wrong symbols and stuff. No one else could understand them, and it was like they were speaking a foreign language. But they could understand each other because they had their like, little twin secret superpowers? Yeah. yeah. So the twin cool. sisters were inseparable and started talking to each other in their own language, which actually later was actually discovered to be a sped up Bajan, Bajan, Bajan Creole? B-A-J-A-N Creole. Okay. And it made it difficult for people to understand them. And it was also said that they had speech impediments that didn't help. I looked up what that uh, was. It's like also called Barbadian English. It's an English-based Creole language with African influence spoken on the Caribbean islands of Barbados. Okay. So, their dad... So, just something like super local, like, it's, kind of locally... It's like um, a really fast English. Like, I give it like a few Uh-huh. Okay. Like, tell me what time you're going. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. like, but really fast. But with, like, and then they colloquial, have, like, like yeah. African stuff. Sure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Their dad said when they first started their schooling, he said, we knew they had the speech problem in the home. They'd talk, make sounds and all that. But we knew that they weren't quite like, you know, normal children talking readily. Okay. 
1971, when the t- twins were eight, Aubrey was moved again for work to Devon. And I don't know where that is, but I'm, okay. assuming, I'm assuming it's still in Wales. Yeah, it's still so it's like Wales or England. It's somewhere. Yeah. That, yeah. Here is where the girls started a new school. Where before at their school, they were just seen as shy and reserved for not talking. But at this school, they were taunted merciless, mercilessly about their skin color and their silence. Oh, buddies. June said, quote, around eight or nine, we started suffering and we stopped talking. People called us names. We were the only black girls in school. They were called terrible names and bullied to the point that they physically got their fucking hair pulled out. Oh, no. Like, that's horrible. It's awful. Yeah. The twins soon stopped making eye contact with others, and at this point, they stopped speaking to their parents and even their older siblings altogether. So they're not talking to anyone. No. There's like eight or nine, and they're just the two of them. Just the two of them. That. Never mind. What? Never mind. Keep going. Ooh. Ooh. Before they would at least like answer. So before they would at least like answer the questions with like a yes or a no. Sure. they They weren't talking much, though, even before that. And so now they're just kind of like, bye, we're not talking at all. June said, quote, we made a pact. We said we weren't going to speak to anybody. We stopped talking altogether, only us two in our bedroom upstairs. So they would just Whoa. go up to the bedroom and just talk to each other in their like little yeah. language. Their parents could sometimes hear the girls chattering to each other in their room in a language that they couldn't understand any more than they understood the girls' silence. God, that would be so creepy. That really would be. That would, Especially when you have, like, two kids that are, like, or, or three you, kids that are, like, just, just being acclimated, normal, normal and, kids. And these two are, like, <clears throat> cutting it off. Well, they're all, I mean, they're being pestered as well. I mean, they're being bullied. and Oh, for sure. Still, it's fucking weird. That whole thing started even before that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So in 1974, when the twins were 11, their dad was transferred to Harvard, Harvardford West, and the family moved to a small town on the local RAF housing estate. So the Harvardford West community was known for having a terrible racism. Well, this is going to go they're well. Right? The twins attended the county secondary school where they and their brother David were once again the only black students. And that's where the bullying was so severe that the girls had to be dismissed five minutes early every day in order to give them a head start for their walk home. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's like they That was the school's preventative like Right. Go ahead and leave five we'll give you a five minute start. Five minute head start. Make sure nobody runs after you. So when they were walking, when they would be walking home, they walked slowly and as they left the school, their movements were always synchronized. Their long arms and legs followed each other exactly. And they always had their heads bound as if they were in like a prayer. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the shiny. That is creepy as fuck. And apparently if people would see them and like start staring at them when they were like moving synchronized and stuff, they would just freeze and just stop stay moving fuck, just and stay just fucking stay paralyzed. Still. Just that Stop. does not make that scary. I did it like like they could hear. It's the sign. That's the. Oh. <laughs> Woof. Well, that's fun. Speaking of prayer, they were very religious. June said, "Quote: We had a ritual. We'd kneel down by the bed and ask God to forgive our sins. We'd open up the Bible and start chanting from it and pray like mad. We'd pray to Him not to let us hurt our family by ignoring them." To give us strength to talk to our mother, our father. We couldn't do it. Hard it was. Too hard. 
hard it was. Hard too hard. it was. <laughs> it sounds like this, this has been dictated or something. Like it's, it, they they just had a computer. I don't know. Hard it was. Hard it was. Hard too much. Hard. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to be Yoda. Okay. I think we, yeah, we got it. Oh, shut up. (laughs) It was good. That was a good Yoda. In 1976, John Rees, a school medical officer, came to their school to vaccinate the students against tuberculosis. Okay. A good thing to do. a wild thing to me to think about. That at one point, you had had people coming to your school to to vaccinate you with tuberculosis in the 70s. Yeah. Wild. I think it was a pretty common thing around the... Mm-hmm. Or it was like, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's just weird to think like they wouldn't come anywhere near a child with a vaccination. These no. people like are against the vaccination Jeez. and shit. Like, you know what I mean? And they're just like, your turn, you know, come here, your turn. Yeah, just in the middle Line of the school day. So, <laughs> it's the same needle too. <laughs> so literally, while he was like getting them lined up, he was preparing the first twin who stood in front of him for the sting. He was preparing her for the sting of the shot. You okay. Know. But she seemed to be in a trance, nearly lifeless and doll-like. He rubbed a little alcohol on her upper arm and vaccinated her, and she didn't have any reaction at all. Like, didn't move, didn't flinch, nothing. He just had to, like, bring up her arm and, like, do it and drive, and she just, like, tranced away. Okay. Second one came up for hers, did the exact same thing. Weird, right? I mean, that's weird. I mean, maybe they're just like they also know a little bit of like zen, you know they're just zen as fuck. They just like, zend out. Zend out. They're man. walking on the hot coals and yeah, shit. Yeah, they're cool, man. They're not even present. <laughs> so the medical officer Rees was disturbed by their behavior, obviously because they're young kids, and so he's probably like all the rest of these kids are like fucking crying, stressed, and, like, wincing, out. and don't want it, and like they're just like, uh, here's my arm, like yeah. Like, oh man, I hope there's not like some like weird abuse shit going on here, man. So, um. He went to the headmaster and was like, actually, he was baffled by the school headmaster when he asked him about it. The headmaster was just like, he didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with the girls. I was like, they're fine. They don't get in trouble. And a lot of race shit came up here, too. Yeah, because they're like they in a really like, racist part of town. Sure. Right? And he was just kind of like, they, they don't get in trouble. They're just African-American and whatever. It's just like, mm. yeah. And oh, the, I didn't put it in there, but the, the school medical officer, like, in his quote, said some like totally racist things about the girls too and i was just like ew really yeah he, just like, unnecessary he them, like the like he like basically like the n-word like came oh, up what the for their fuck, shot though? and it was just like ew oh just like casually in his notes like basically like, this in, racial was, like, slur came... or whatever but what yeah. the fuck yeah. bro yeah um it wasn't like the full it was close to it but it still wasn't sure come on like sure. i wasn't gonna put it in a so. slang is a fucking slang yeah exactly I mean? exactly so Rees referred the case to um, a person named Evan Davies, the consultant uh, child psychiatrist for the region. Okay. Did I say that weird? Psychiatrist. You went pretty Moira with it. Uh, we have been, re- we're real deep in Shit's Creek right now. Psychiatrist for the region. David. So Davies, maybe that's why, because it's Davies. Davies tried to talk to the twins, but they would not respond at all. He was unable to tell them apart. Quote, treatment under these circumstances presents a considerable challenge when, I'm a re- when I am reluctant to accept, end quote, he wrote to Rees. So instead, he referred the girls to a lady named Anne Treharn, the chief speech therapist at Haverford West's uh, Withy Bush, Withy Bush Hospital. <laughs> Withy Bush? <laughs> it, it looks like it's with Y Bush. Withy Bush. Withy Bush. Withy Bush. Withy Bush. Go on, Withy Bush. Go to the Wishy Bush Hospital. Go ahead and take Withy Bush. Uh, 
this is where they began treatment in February 1977. Okay. They almost never spoke to Anne or to each other in front of her, but they did agree to read aloud onto tape after she left the room. What? Yeah. So this is crazy because she went back and listened to the tapes. And when she listened to them, she discovered that the twins' secret language was actually a mixture of Barbadian slang and English spoken very quietly because she slowed it down. Because, you know, I was like saying they're like, she was like, uh-huh. so she slowed it down and she could understand. So that they they're speaking, speaking like a high, like their own English hybrid, hybrid language, like slang. Wow. And they're doing it really quick and quietly. Yeah. That's fucking while having crazy. like some sort of a speech impediment as well. The girls had West Indian accents and were hampered by palatal frictivies. Sure. So for the S sound, they would say shh. So like shh instead uh-huh. of or S or you know what I mean. And for instance, like when she was in the room, she sensed. Oh, this is well. So that's the end of that. But um, so when she was in the room, she sensed that June wanted to speak to her. And was stopped only by eye signals from Jennifer, who appeared to control June's actions. Okay. June called this eye language, the therapist said. Jennifer sat there with an impressionless gaze, but I felt her power. The thought entered my mind that June was possessed by her twin, was what this person said. Okay. Um, Possessed by her twin? Yeah. Kind of like she's like... I'm the motherfucking boss. Like, fucking... But not like like a demon, but I mean, like she just felt very like that's not her. Like right. she just took over her body and was like not letting her speak, basically. Jesus. So Rees decided they should be moved to a different school and they were transferred to the Eastgate Center for Special Education in Pembroke, uh, which is was eight miles away from where they were. Okay. From their home. That's not far. Yeah, but something that I found really weird was that the head teacher Kathy Arthur would go to a bus station that was half a mile from the, the kid's house. So they would walk this half a mile uh-huh. to the bus station because they obviously, you know, because they used to walk sure. to school yeah. and they, they couldn't walk eight miles every day, right. 16 miles, but you know, and so she would meet them at this bus station and she would drive them the rest of the way to school. But when she would get there, the girls would be standing there stiffly, not approach the car. She'd have to physically have to get out of the car and move the girls individually over to the car doors. Then they would still not get in on their own. And she would have to like physically bend their arms and legs and body to get them into the car. What? Yeah. She had to like, like basically like a dummy, like, but they didn't like resist. They were just like, in a like a paralyzed sort of just like trans wouldn't move. Like, yeah, it was said that sometimes it could take up to half an hour for her to actually get them into the car to take them to school. Girls, you better get in this. And I mean, well, if they, they might have like, they might have like some, you know, we don't know. They might have like some, some kind of serious, sure. you know, yeah. stuff going on. But it's like the head teacher came and got him and had it. I think that's so bizarre. I think it's, like, that's why, awesome. Honestly. I guess but, the mom wouldn't, couldn't drive. Like, I don't know why she wasn't taking them. To school. Yeah. What are the parents up to, man? Just stressing out? Yeah. I kind of get to that actually. Oh, okay, cool. Something. Oh, actually, I think that's literally my next, the, literally my next line. I'm good at asking questions at the right time. This is something else that I found super odd. I was like, where are the parents? Like. They really weren't involved in any of the decision making. They felt that they had to trust the trust trust that they had to trust the British authorities who presumably knew better than they did. Aubrey, the dad, said, quote, we were never like consulted at any time. At no time were we called and said, 
like, well, these children are not doing as well as they should, you know. Before we knew it, they were in the Eastgate, and we just had a toe in line, as it were. Really? So they yeah. weren't even, like, considered. They weren't even consulted. They were just kind of like, wow. hey, we're doing this. this They're going here now. now. They're going here now. Don't worry. Like, just send them to the bus station, and we'll send the head teacher over. Yeah, fuck you. You better tell me, bro. It's so weird. Yeah. I mean, it's a different time. 70s. True. You know. True. Different country. Quite true. Yes, you're right. They apparently fared a little better at Eastgate. I'm assuming that was maybe because they were maybe a little less bullied. I don't know. because. I yeah, know. I would hope that they were. But they were still remaining silent and stiff and always with the gaze looking down. So they were still completely silent at home to their family members, except for their little sister, who still shared the room with them. They would talk to <gasps> her. Yeah. They wouldn't say a word at dinner, even when their family members tried to talk to them. Their muteness dominated, like, everything and everyone. I bet it was super fucking awkward all the time. It's like when one person has, like, a very powerful one thing, you know? Yeah, and it was, like, so stressful that it even would drive their older sister Greta to tears. Like, she would just, like, break down because it was just, like, why aren't they talking? They're just, like, so fucking. And they would, when they would eat, if they would eat in front of people, they would do it exactly the same. They would take their fork at the exact same time, take the bite at the exact same time, put the fork down at the exact same time. That is stressful in and of itself. the exact same amount. Yeah. Like, cause that's not a thing that they have time to practice. You know what I mean? Well, and like, where did they learn that language and stuff? Like, how did they yeah. just made that thing? They, that... Well, it seems like it, it's it's mostly made. Sure. Like, it's a but blend it of stuff also, that they had learned. But it's based off of something that they wouldn't it, have been taught. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. So in 1978, they actually attended Greta's wedding, but refused to join the festivities and had to be physically moved around as well. What? Like they wouldn't like interact they went like they, they, apparently like the family, See, like the parents had to like move them it's to like an get extreme them, like, social anxiety or chair. something here's the whatever the family decided that they would no longer be invited to like family activities and events after that because it was just like you all yeah look like crazy people well it's just you know and the, i'm sure if they were interacting they were just doing their little like <laughs> yeah so they had therapy sessions at their new school with a school therapist named tim thomas but he was met with the same silence. I, don't trust, I never trust somebody with two first names. Tim Thomas met with the same silence as everyone else. He even tried to give it back to them at one point and just be like, well, I'll just be silent too. Uh-huh. All right, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be silent. And he, they were cool as because fuck with it. The thing is, they they were smart. They were they were doing well in school. They were they were reading. They could read yeah. and write and yeah. everything, but they wouldn't talk. Right? That's one of the things Like I wondered, like, if is there some kind of, you know – Something like right. is it autism but or then they would like talk to each other? So it's like we know you can talk, you know yeah. what I mean? So, um, yeah, at one point he tried to like give the silence thing back to them, and that made no difference. It was like obvious that they were probably cool, he was they not gonna be able to out silence them. He was quoted for a documentary saying, quote, There was a tremendous sort of novelty, novelty value. Damn insolence was an expression that was once used in relation to the girls. He recalled it was understandable in the sense you've got. People there sitting in front of you who say nothing. You're getting animated about a particular lesson and there's absolutely no feedback. It's quite threatening in a way. End quote. Yeah. I get that. I could see that. that. Yeah. Like you know how to talk. Yeah. And you're just like, you will only talk to each other. Or like, you know, and you see one of them maybe wants to talk and the other one like gives them that glare. And this really stressful thing is like, what the fuck did they talk about? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. You'll see, probably. Okay. Oh, shit. I got a lot more pages, buddy. Yeah, you do, buddy. So in 1977, we're, well, that's where we're at right now. We're at 1977. Oh, I did jump to 1978 for the wedding because that was just a tidbit. Sure, yeah, sure. But 
1977, the girls are at Eastgate. They're making zero progress. The therapist, unable to come up with any sort of treatment because they don't they won't talk to them so they don't know what's going on so yeah. they don't know how to treat it propose the idea of them being separated oh you better not okay. <laughs> bro no they're like so jennifer would remain at eastgate and june would be sent to live at saint david's adolescent u- unit 30 miles away okay Oh, y'all done started the goddamn apocalypse. This is going to go so Their poorly. Their intention here was that to help the twins establish distinct personalities away sure. from each other, right? Sure. The staff apparently was really torn about if they wanted to do this or not. It was kind of like half and half. Half of them were like, fucking don't do that. That's yeah. only going to make it worse. Then they're not going to have anybody to talk to. Yeah. And half of them were like, yeah, maybe we just need to fucking separate them and they'll start talking. You know, maybe one of them is controlling the other one. Maybe we need to get rid of You separate them, right? Oh, fucking hell. So inevitably, they did separate them. When they were first, when the girls were first told of this idea, they were actually into it. This is, this is where it's just, just extra weird because they had thought of separation before they'd like written it out or something okay. like about how they had thought about maybe they needed to be separated from each other. Um, but when the day came and they sat down to tell them like uh, the where day. they'd be going, yeah. they freaked the fuck out within moments after this happens they were screaming and hitting each other each other jennifer dug her nails into june's cheek okay and june pulled a chunk of hair out of jennifer's head Ah! (laughs) Ah, yeah bro they chased each other out of the mr thomas's office shrieking and had to be forcibly parted even weirder they got mad at each other over this so even weirder is that after being told of the confirmation that they'd be separated, they all of a sudden could talk. They somehow found the phone numbers of all the staff members and would call them repeatedly and tell them that if they could stay together, that they would start talking and that everything would be fine. So all of a sudden, they're just like calling them up on the phone. They go from no, never talking to anyone to being right. like... Calling them, finding their a phone goddamn phone somehow, tree. Starting, finding them somehow. They had no like... Right. There there wasn't like a directory for them to just, they had to find them. But then the next day, nothing would change. They would still be quiet. They would call them and talk, but then the next day they would be, they wouldn't, they would go right back to it. That's insane. Yeah. So in March 1978, the separation was carried out. But at St. David's, June fell into such despair that she stopped moving almost entirely. It once took two people to get her out of bed. And then all they would do was prop her up against a wall. Her body was all stiff and heavy as a corpse. What the hell? So she's just like. Just completely not like unresponsive in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So even as they struggled to become themselves, they could not live without each other either. This was um, something that was quoted that um, Jennifer talked about. She said, quote, you are Jennifer. You are me. Jennifer would say over the years when she felt her sister pulling away from their bond. Quote, I am June. I am June. Her sister would cry out in anguished response. One quote, one day she'd wake up and be me. And one day I would wake up and be her. What the fuck though? That's what June said. Quote, and we used to say to each other, give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. Needless to say, (laughs) the separation was a failure. (laughs) At least from the standpoint of rehabilitation-wise. That was just something else that I was adding in that they would say. That they were 
Oh my gosh. So June was sent back to Eastgate. And by the winter of 1979, when they were 16, both girls left school forever. Okay. They were done. They, They peaced out. They had had enough. Right. So now at home full time, they became even worse and wouldn't even come out of their rooms at all. Okay. They began writing letters to their mom if they wanted something. For instance, if they wanted to watch TV, they would write a note saying what they wanted to watch and like when they would have their um, and they would have their parents leave the living room door open and they would sit on at the edge of their bedroom, like not come out of their bedroom door, but open the bedroom door, sit at the edge of it and watch the TV from upstairs. Oh, and have my the parents gosh. Like, one of the notes would be said, we want to see Top of Pops tonight at 7 p.m. Please leave living room door open. So it would be like sit at the they're st- talking to each other, and have, watch it from. They wouldn't even come down to the TV. And the, what the fuck though? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's getting even weirder. Using dolls, they invented a family to replace the one they had excommunicated. Most of their doll children were twins and had elaborate names like Johnny Joshua and Anne Marie Esther Kingston, or Alma and Billy Ho Haynes. There was also a doll Gibbons family. So they could made a family of their family. Okay. And they actually, when as their littlest sister was lived in that, like shared the room with them for the longest time. And so they kept talking to her. And I don't know if I bring this up at some point, but they would keep, her ta- they would talk to her and they would let her play with the dolls with them until she moved out and got, she finally moved into her own room and then they like excommunicated her. Whoa. Yeah. So, all their dolls were Americans, mostly from places like Philadelphia or Malibu. When one of the dolls died, the uh, Rosie, the official register of the doll world, would record the causes of its demise with relish. So, for instance, they made like so they made like a diary. They would kill the like kill them oh, somehow. I don't like how we're already somehow. we're already killing stuff. <laughs> we're all well. We're not already killing stuff. I saw murder coming, maybe a little bit. But. Which curious is like this example that I found was like an excerpt of. With the, where they had written down, and they were they're all Gibbons. So it said June Gibbons, age nine, died of leg injury. George Gibbons, age four, died of eczema. Bo- uh, what? B- Bluey Gibbons, age two and a half, died of appendix. This is like their record keeping. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Peter Gibbons, age five, adopted, presumed dead. Adopted, presumed yeah. dead. Julie Gibbons, age two and a half, died of a stamped stomach. A stamped stomach. Yeah. Uh, I guess stomped. St- okay. Sorry. Okay. I was thinking stampede. Stamped. <laughs> <laughs> she got totally stamped, bro. She got a stamped stomach, She yo. got two into the stampede. She got stamped, bro. But it's it's spelled out stamped. S-T-A-M-P-E-D. Maybe that's what... I mean, yeah. Stomped. Stamped. Stomped I mean, would be an L, fucking, right? Who, yeah. Death by leg injury. Death by appendix. Yeah. Oh, and lastly, know? Polly Morgan Gibbons, age four. And they're also all young. Yeah, they're all the little baby nine. Gibbons. Died of a slit face. Oh, wait, slit and there was one more, sorry. Face? Yeah. And Susie Pope Gibbons died the same time of a cracked skull. So things are violent in there. Things are getting violent. Weird. Yeah. But that's, they're like, those are violent But they're like creating notions. their own worlds. They're just, you So know. they have all these dolls, and they've, they, and well, I guess this gets uncovered later that they had this going on. Or yeah. their parents knew. Or, this is like, they're like 16. Six, they're, yeah. Doing this. Playing with dolls. Yeah. Super disassociated. Yeah. Okay. 
So, in 1979 for Christmas, Gloria, their mom, gave June and Jennifer each a red leather-bound diary with a lock, and they began to keep detailed account of their lives, okay? This was as part of a new, like, self-improvement program of sure, theirs. Sure, sure. They pull oh, so they pulled their their dole. They were getting um the dole a dole is money that a government, especially the British government, gives to people who do not have jobs or who are very poor. Okay, like in unemployment, basically they were getting that. Okay, because they were they weren't, which is crazy to me because they weren't even like yeah adults yet really. Yeah. But they were out of the they were out of the school system. I guess maybe. once you're out of the school knows, system, yeah. Because yeah. you would think that the parents would have to be like accountable accountable for for giving. Yeah, I don't know. So. They pulled their money to enroll in a creative writing correspondence course. Okay. Okay. They registered as one person, and which was student number 8201, and they decided that they were going to become famous authors. Hey, okay. okay. Great. Great. So, just tell me this is J.K. Rowling. and Just like and an it, outlet, right? Yeah. This is just Imagine Life, the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. That January, June began writing a novel called The Pepsi Cola Addict, whose hero... Preston Widely King, a teenager from Malibu. They really like those. They like Malibu. Those, yeah. Fantasizes about living somewhere else. Preston is seduced by his school teacher. He takes up with a gang. A stint in jail follows an attempt at a homosexual seduction. And in the end, a return home to his mother and sister and an apparent death from an overdose of barbiturates. Gee, money. Yeah. That's a wild story right there. Jennifer wrote two novels in a matter of weeks. The first was The Pugilist. I think that's how you say it. Okay. P-U-G-I-L-I-S-T. About a boy with a failing heart whose surgeon father implants him the heart and soul of their boxer dog. What? And then the dog takes revenge on the dad and, like, kills him. It's really, really oh, man. great story, guys. And Discomania, the story of a group of urban youths who were controlled by their need for a disco beat. On January 8th, 1980, she wrote in her diary, I started my fabulous new novel, Disco Mania, today. Uh, um, last night, I spent the night doing the 14 plot points. It's going to be a knockout, I'm sure. Yowzers. Oh, okay. June's novel was published by a vanity press, but she, what? she had pay for it. Oh, well. She persuaded Jennifer to con- contribute her dull money to help pay for the publication. But Jennifer, who legitimately tried to get in, like, legitimate presses for without paying to get yourself in. Sure. She met with nothing but rejection. Oh. Which I'm sure the other one probably would have, too, if she didn't pay her way. Pay to it, get so. published, yeah. But she did get it published. So it's out there. Wow. The Pepsi-Cola one? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um. So June and Jennifer are now 18, okay? And at this point, they're, like, longing for someone to notice them. So they settle on a boy named Lance Kennedy. He was a fellow. Fucking Godspeed, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck, bro. So he was a fellow Eastgate student who had, like, defended them against the abuse by their classmates when they were in school, I guess, a little bit. But he didn't, like, pay any attention to them. But he was an American. So I don't know if that made any difference. Was he from Malibu? I don't know. But by the time the twins tracked down his family's address, so like they're not in school anymore. They're just right. like out in the hey, world. Remember that guy? Let's, yeah. Let's let's focus on him. Wow. So by the time they tracked down his family's address in um, Welsh Hook, which was ten miles from Harvard, Harvardford West, he had moved to Philadelphia. Oh, wasn't that one of their? Yeah, that was one of their things. Maybe that's where he was from originally. Yeah, maybe. But 
he had three younger brothers who were still in Wales. Jerry, the oldest, Wayne, who was the closest to the, their age, and then Carl, who was the youngest. Okay. okay. In April 1981, June and Jennifer took a taxi to the Kennedy house for the first time. They find the, these guys' house. Uh-huh. When they arrived, it was empty, but they found that the front door was unlocked. Inside, they made... They went in. They went into the house. Okay. They made sandwiches. They broke a bedroom door. They went into the boys' rooms and looked all through their stuff, like sniffing stuff. Like uh, What? Took a few things. How do you know they were sniffing stuff? I mean, I think that's like they were rummaging. They were like, oh, my cologne. That's terrible. And then they apparently freaky. sat down to watch TV in the living room. But the boy's father and stepmother came home and discovered the girls trying to flee out of a back window. Okay. So he ran out front and like met him around, right? To kind of cut him off and be like, what the fuck? But they wouldn't talk. He, he kept trying to be like, what are you doing? I think I know who you guys are. Uh-huh. Because prior to this, apparently they'd been blowing him up like, on the phone. Like kept calling and calling and calling and calling. And he was like, I think you're this girls that I keep calling. Yeah. You know, but like our boys aren't even home. What the fuck? So after he couldn't persuade the twins to speak, he felt sorry for them. And he called them a taxi and like sent them on their way. Right. And he was like, the boys are in on a vacation. They're not even going to be here. So don't even. Don't bother. Yeah. But they did not give up. And they spent all their money taking taxis to Welsh Hook. And they actually even came, went back to the house the next day. Jeez. Eventually, they did meet the other Kennedy boys. And they actually started seeing them regularly. Really? Yeah. So. June is quoted saying, I love this. They were American boys. White boys. Good looking like. Do you know that boy, Leo DiCaprio? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) We'd take a taxi, all in makeup and short skirts and high shoes and wigs and lipstick, like ladies, like film stars. We were trying to entice the boys to make them like us. We wanted to go be glamorized, so we got long brown wigs and sunglasses and chewing gum. I can just see I'm like, oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> like, are you, where are you from? Uh-huh. <laughs> we spent about three hours getting ready to go out when they would, like, go to see them or whatever. They're, like, talking to these boys. Yeah. But at this point, they're... They started getting really into drugs and alcohol. Oh, They said the great. alcohol was what they used to speak. So it's kind of like Raj like low, on yeah, uh, Big Bang Theory. He can't speak to any, their any women. Yeah. yeah. She's, it said, quote, without the whiskey, we didn't speak. We reckoned that God told us to buy drink and it worked. We sniffed glue and lighter fluid. Jesus. Yeah. We were different then. Laughing and talking. We were so relaxed and laid back. While huffing shit. Yeah. Like, oh, I found my voice. <laughs> oh, my God. So the youngest Kennedy, Carl, was 14. He found himself super interested in the girls. And that alcohol must have really helped them open up because Jennifer and Carl had sex. Okay. So Jennifer wrote in June 1981, quote, Dear Diary, one of the best days of my sweet life. I've lost my beautiful virginity to Carl Kennedy at last. It hurt a lot, but it happened. There was lots of blood. We did it in a church. Sorry, God. Your friend, Jenny. Yikes. Yeah. The church was near the Kennedy's home, and the three had gotten drunk. The three, June, Jennifer, and uh-huh. Carl. Uh, what was poor June having to do? Uh, and June watched as Jennifer and Carl had sex. She watched? Yeah. Then 13 days later, June 
had sex while Jennifer watched with Carl in the exact same place. What the fuck, bro? Yeah. So they both lost their virginity to the same boy. And the same place. Within like two weeks of each other. And watched each other do it. So. Jesus. That's fun. Sisterly bond. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> okay. While all of this was happening, the girls started to kind of get jealous of each other. Okay. Like the one time when they're like kind of branching out and kind of maybe separating a little bit. And like the one, like they didn't, whoever was getting the attention from the boy, right? Right. Was upsetting them. And at one point, one of the girls, I don't know which did which. One of the girls tried to strangle... One of the twins tried to strangle the other one with a a radio cord. Jesus. Started to strangle her, but let her go. And then the other one who wasn't strangled, she, at a different point within, like, while this was happening, pushed the other sister in, like, a body of water and tried to drown her. Oh, my God. But as a car's headlight came up and, like, shined on them, she let her go. So, while they were, like... There's a lot of homicide vibes happening. But like right while now. they're like inseparable, they're like they also have like a hate for each other. Even though they're the only they've only talked to each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So June wrote in her diary, We're both holding each other back. There's a murderous gleam in her eye. Dear Lord, I am scared of her. She is not normal. She's having a nervous breakdown. Someone is driving her insane. It is me. But by the end of that summer, when they're having this like whatever, this whirlwind romance. The Wallace boys actually moved back to America, kind of abruptly ending everything. Oh, shit. They also, the girls also, after this happened, they really started to focus on food. And they would, like, apparently binge themselves, starve themselves, binge, them, binge themselves, starve themselves over and over again. And June wrote, quote, Jay and I are like lovers. This is, like, right around the same time, right? A love, hate, I'm quoting a lot of their diaries because it's sure. obviously the sure. basis for a lot of. Well, how we know what what they were saying, uh-huh. you know, because we're talking. Jay and I are like lovers, a love hate relationship. She thinks I am weak. She knows not how I fear her. This makes me feel more weak. I want to be strong enough to split from her. Oh, Lord, help me. I am in despair. At the same time, Jennifer wrote. She should have died at birth. Cain killed Abel. No twin should forget that. June writes, Jesus. I'm in enslavement to her, this creature. Who is with me every hour of my living soul? Jennifer also writes, Jay can't be my real twin. My real twin was born the exact same time as me. Has my rising sign, my looks, my ways, my dreams, my ambitions. He or she will have my weaknesses, failures, opinions. All this makes a twin. No differences. I can't stand differences. Oh, God. So that's What's happening? So after all of this, they're doing this weird food shit and they're like, well, fuck that. Like one weird time where we were like doing this stuff and like getting attention from these boys that uh-huh. we were feeling like people like it's gone. So they began to direct their loathing, oh, their loathing to like everything to their surroundings. Which is their home, right? Like their, their, their parents' house where they're everything around them. I'm okay. going to get to it. I'm going to tell you. Okay. I know. I hope so. Obviously. Come on. I have three more pages. I know we're getting, but it's about whatever's about to happen is about to happen. It's all. This is really all. It's just a very. It's been happening. Story. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is yeah. in. This is it, bizarre. It is hap- this is actually happening. This is actually happening. The girls began stealing bicycles and glue, which 
I'm assuming it's the Huff. Oh, okay. I forgot about that. I know. I, I, I like, when what? I first read that, I was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah. They, they like are they going to glue these bicycles together? <laughs> a human centipede make, with these bicycles? Make some weird art. Oh, God. Uh, they would ring people's doorbells repeatedly. They boke. Boke? They boke. They boke it up, didn't they? <laughs> they broke into a training center for spastic adults, which, what is that? That can't be what that's still called. Oh, God. I hope I'm not saying politically incorrect something. No, but I mean, like. I don't think that like spastic is like a maybe that's maybe that's a term used abroad. Maybe like, you know. guys, I'm not trying to be say you're ignorant. Cool. I probably should have googled it. No, you're good. But that's what it was. That's what it was quoted as in this article, which was the New Yorker. So yeah, go so with them. Okay? That's what that's what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they broke into a school and apparently watched TV. I don't. I don't know. Or maybe they watched TV in the training center. I don't know. They smashed windows, stole books, drew graffiti on walls. They tried to break a payphone, then called the police to confess to their crimes, hanging okay. up and running away before the police could arrive on the scene. Okay, good, good plan. At least you're talking. At least they're talking. All high on Elmer's glue. Right. Eventually, the twins grew bored with the little stuff and decided to escalate. There we go. This June... is the hang on to your butts part of the <laughs> podcast, I think. Well, so June wrote, quote, I'm planning on making petrol bombs, a bottle, petrol and paper, then hurl it through the window. I'm going to the big, be the biggest arsonist around. Okay, So on October, 20th, I wish you would have just stuck stuck with writing books. Yeah, right. Oh, gosh. On October 24th, 1981, June wrote all this week. I wanted to burn down the tractor store in Snowdrop Lane. I burned it down today with the help of Jay, of course. It was the biggest night of my life. I also find it curious that she doesn't write Jennifer. She just writes Jay. But yeah, we climbed over a barbed wire fence. The sky grew, the sky grew blacker and it started to rain. All the while, my lovely, glorious fire was licking its way through the roof and the thick smoke filled the night sky. It was a picture which will live in my mind forever. Oh, what a sinful, evil, selfish mind. I know the Lord will forgive me. It's been a long, painful, hard year. Don't I deserve to express my distress? What? <laughs> and the fact that they're like fledgling writers and they have to make everything like as the as it sure. licked through. But they actually did it. That yeah, wasn't just no, our Yeah, they no, I get that. Yeah. That. On November 8th, the, so I guess that'd still be the same, yeah, same year, 1981, the twins smashed a window at Pembroke College, uh, Pembroke Technical College. A policeman patrolling the vicinity heard them called for backup, and caught them on the point of lighting a fire. So they were going to try to burn that place down, too. Okay. They were arrested, and their room back at their parents' house was searched, and they found all the diaries. The diaries were filled with the stories of fires and theft because they were doing this a lot. They were going on, like, an arson spree. Okay. Two days later, the twins were sent to the Puckle Church? Puckle, Puckle Church. Puckle. I'm going Puckle. Puckle. Puckle Church Remand Center, where they remained for seven months while the judicial system tried to decide what they were going to do with them. Uh-huh. Okay. At Puckle Church, the twins were confined together, and their bond became a torment. Neither could stand the smell, the sight, or the thought of each other. Oh, no. And they each began to desire the other's death. So that's fun. June wrote this while in the cell next to her sister. Okay. So they still have writing utensils, I guess. Silly. Which I would be like, should they have pencils? Yeah. Or pens? If I was them, I would be like, stop writing everything fucking down. Yeah, right? Well, they're not talking. Yeah, true. Because even like the cop couldn't get them to. They oh, still like don't. when the cop caught them. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
cop caught them, they, I think they gave him like a false name. And then when they, I think it was like when you talked to the dispatcher or something, they were like, that's the silent ones. We know those, those are the Gibsons. These are their names and they're girls. He thought one of them was like a boy because she had really short hair. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So she wrote, one of us is plotting to kill one of us, a thud on the head on a cool evening, dragging the lifeless body, digging a secret grave. I'm in a dangerous situation, a scheming, insidious plot. How will it end? I'm an enslavement to her, this creature who lounges in this cell, who is with me every hour of my living soul. Hour of my living soul. Mm-hmm. That's just such a weird way to Sure. Every say hour it, of know? my living soul. We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We scheme, we plot, and who will win? A deadly day is getting closer each minute, coming to a point of inim- imminent death like hands creeping out against the night sky intentions of evil blood a knife a mincer sure a mincer (laughs) i say to myself how can i get rid of my own shadow impossible or impossible that's the same thing girl yep without my shadow would i die without my shadow would i gain life Ugh. no wonder you were never published (laughs) okay In the spring of 1982, a psychiatrist named William Spry was brought in to evaluate them and, you know, figure out, like, what was going on because obviously they were going to have to go on to, like, a trial and shit. And he diagnosed the twins as having a psychotic personality disorder. And he proposed that they be sent to Broadmoor, which was England's notorious maximum security hospital for the criminally insane. Mm -hmm. Which there was, like... It's well known for having like some of the most notorious serial killers. Oh, in, really? In I think England. Yeah, England. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I, I literally just said England. <laughs> England. But it's like they did arson. Yeah, um, but they also there's a lot of other yeah. stuff. You it's know, it's also it's different than going to prison. So sure. So the girls were inevitably tried in May of 1982 on 16 joint counts of burglary, theft, and arson. Because that's what happens when you write down everything you everything did. Everything that you did. Yeah. Like when the Stupid. evidence can cooperate. Like when it happened, you know. Yeah. They pleaded guilty on the advice of their lawyers and were ordered to be detained at Broadmoor indefinitely. Oof. Life sentence? I mean, in, in, until. Until they're cleared or definitely okay to leave yeah <laughs> so days after the twins arrived at the hospital oh June no buddy slipped into a it was called a torpor a torpor have you ever heard of this i've not it's a state of physical or mental inactivity like lethargy 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 don't know why yep yep torpor i've never heard that i haven't either I've learned a few things on this, though, and I had to google <laughs> a few different words well you that's why we drink and we know things baby come I on didn't google uh what was it? The place that they broke into? Spastic mm-hmm. adults? Spastic. Oh, shit. Jeez. Okay. A few weeks later, she attempted suicide. Jennifer attacked a nurse. And they were put in separate wards and were denied access to each other for a, a long time. They were 19 when they entered. Golly. For a month, June wouldn't speak at all. Later, she would often respond to questions with an infu- infuriating smile is what it said. Like, that's creepy. Those are the. I just see like that, like the smiling man or something. I yeah, like, I don't know. It's like so smug and like. I don't know. I don't yeah. like it. I don't like it. Just yes. you don't speak and then you just go. Hmm. Just give a really <laughs> fucked up weird <laughs> smile. Yeah. Yeah. When Jennifer tried to communicate, 
She was not understood. She was given regular injections of an antipsychotic drug that caused her vision to blur and made it hard for her to read or write, which I'm sure pissed her the fuck off. Oh, I guarantee it. June was given other antipsychotic medications, and their family rarely visited. They were, uh, June wrote, we are forgotten, faded away, never to be seen again. Day and I are two twins of history, colored girls. Life will go on outside, passing away. Where are we now? They will say. Oh, my God. So something kind of sad. Really fucking creepy that would happen when they were in there. Couple things. One, because they were in there for a while, which I will get to. They would go on eating weird eating binges. They would want. They would one of them. They would decide which one was going to eat and which one was going to starve. Okay. One of them wouldn't eat, and then one of them would eat a lot. And then when their complexion had changed a lot, the one that wasn't eating would get skinny, and the one who was eating would get mad, and so they would swap. And what? she would start eating, and the other one would like when they were when they did get to the point where they were eating. Jesus. Yeah. Also, when they were in separate cells on separate parts of the ward where they uh-huh. could not see each other, they would be in these weird, like catatonic. I don't know if that's the right word. Like weird poses, like frozen, like looking up at the sky, like weird poses. And if they went to the other sister's room, she would be in the exact same pose at the exact Shut same the time. Up. Like the nurses would be like, she's doing this thing. And then we'd go over and the other one would be doing the exact same thing. What? At the, the exact same fuck? time. And they couldn't see each other. Yeah. They weren't even in the same part of the hospital. Some weird ritual or something, man. No, like, or just, no, because it's not like something they did on a regular basis. I mean. Oh, it wasn't like on a, wow. It was just like weird, crazy. like they would just be in these like weird states and <laughs> the other one would be in the exact same state. Nope. That's nope. a horror movie. That's what, abs- This whole thing has been a horror movie That's so true. far. Jennifer and June spent the next 12 years at the prison hospital. Damn. Yeah. June said, quote, juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We had to work hard to get out. We went to the doctor. We said, look, they wanted us to talk. We're talking now. He said, you're not getting out. You're going to be here for 30 years. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the home office. I wrote a letter to the queen asking her to pardon us to get us out, but we were trapped. Jesus. Yeah. So I guess at some point they did talk, but like, were did end up talking, but they were definitely like not super communicative. No. Or Jennifer became very schizophrenic in there, and she would hear things like gunshots going off in oh, her no. cell and stuff like that. And she would think June was like spiking her drinks and shit when they were together. And so they decided they they tried at one point to put them together, and that was apparently a huge disaster. They would kick and bite and scratch at each other. That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for some sort of reaction. They actually let them be around together for like eight months with them being like that, too. Wow. So another really fucking weird thing. The girls had a long-standing agreement that if one died, the other must begin to speak and live a normal life. Oh, Jesus. During their stay in the hospital, they began to believe that it was necessary for one of them to die. Oh, and after no. much discussion, Jennifer agreed to make the sacrifice of her life. Okay. What? So. I know, right? I always thought she was like the bigger identity. Uh-huh. I know, know, right? <laughs> Would we in the movie Split? Yeah. Miss Patricia. Miss Patricia. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen that movie, it's great. It's great like movie. Multiple identity uh, disorder movie. It's pretty cool. It's pretty. Everybody's seen so, it. It's a pretty big movie. June and Jennifer were nearly 30 years old 
when they were released from Broadmoor on the morning of March 9th, 1993. They were being sent to the Caswell Clinic, a minimum security institution in southwest Wales. Okay. Um, where they would be able to kind of come come and go as they please, I think. Sure. They'd still be, like, monitored. Yep. On the bus. Like Jen- a halfway house. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, it's still, like, a... Yeah. Yeah. On the bus, Jennifer rested her head on her sis- twin sister's shoulder and said, quote, at long last, we are out. I know you're like, you're on the last page. What? Yeah. On arrival, Jennifer Jennifer could not be awoken. Okay, she Ugh. was taken to the hospital where she died soon after of acute myocarditis. Okay. Okay, which I don't know what that is. A sudden inflammation of the heart. Stop it. There was no evidence of drugs or poison in her Stop system. Stop it. No. And her death remains a mystery. What? Oh, my God. You did say this was a fucking mystery. At the inquest, June revealed that Jennifer had been acting strangely for about a day before their release. Her speech had been slurring, and she had said that she was dying. Oh, what on the, the fuck? On the trip to Caswell, she slept in June's lap with her eyes open she lay down with her head in her lap with her eyes open and was like sleeping a few days later june had said that she was in a strange mood and that she had said i'm free at last liberated and at last jennifer has given up her life for me what the fuck after jennifer's death june gave interviews with harper's bazaar uh the guardian and by 2008 she was living quietly and independently near her parents house in west wales she has no longer has to be monitored by psychiatric services has been accepted by her community and sought to put the past behind her a 2016 (laughs) interview with her sister greta revealed that the family has been deeply troubled by the girl's incarceration she blamed broadmoor for ruining their lives and for neglecting jennifer's health uh june wanted to file a lawsuit against broadmoor but aubrey and gloria her parents refused saying it would not bring jennifer back Oh my god, dude! So what the fuck? Her twin sister died for her, laid her head over Just in her gave lap, up. and gave up. And basically, immediately after that, her it was June over. went over to le- live a normal life, talk, be normal, go on, live life. I gotta get just out like of here, her man. sisters, just what like they just fuck? like they agreed to. That is nuts, bud. Yeah. So, I'm so glad they didn't kill anyone else. But she still died. It's she such died. A, a mystery. Yeah. What? Wow. Like she did she what? Her heart just gave up. So the pair were the subject of the 1986 television drama The Silent Twins, broadcast on BBC, uh, two as part of its two, Screen 2 series and inside story documentary Silent Twin Without My Shadow, which aired on BBC 1 in September 1994 and their story also inspired the 1998 Manic Street preacher song Tsunami. And that's the insane story of June and Jennifer Gibbons, also known as the Silent Twins. Damn, that was a good one. Oh. That was a good one. I know one. it's like, oh, so up and down, but how weird is that? That's insane. And they're like known as the Silent Twins, and then one just died. Th- the minute they got out. The minute they got out. It was just like, it was all... The bus ride over to the new place. Uh, She laid over and died. Like, I at least got out of there. And it's still like, they're like, don't know why. Because she was like healthy. There was nothing. I mean, well. You know, within reason. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Okay. Well, moving right along. Tell me one now. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. right. Well, my turn. Yeah. Yes. 
tonight on We Drink and We Know Things. I'm going to be dipping my tit into some fringe <laughs> shit. Uh-oh. But not so fringe that it hasn't been touched by the mainstream. This fringe thing that I'm going to be talking about was adapted firstly as a comic book, then oh. a series of films. A full-ass series oh. of films. The I first- was going to say, I hope it's not Blake Libel. Remember he that guy that I covered? He wrote the those dark the comic comics book and killer. then he like, yeah. drained that poor girl. It's not that. Good. Nope. <laughs> the first of these movies was released July 2nd, 1997, hmm. and grossed over $589 million worldwide. Okay, but like, is it based off a true story? What? Okay. I'm following. Okay. I, I, I'm talking about The Men in Black with Williams, William Smith's and Tommy Lee Jones's. <laughs> What? <laughs> We're talking about Men in Black tonight. The real okay. Men in Black. The real Men in Black. The real Men in Black. Oh. The Men in Black is inspired by real stuff. For real? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. It I'm was... like, wait, are you going to recap the movie? Like, what are we doing? No. So, yeah, there is a huge, um, like, conspiracy sort of whole thing about the real men in black and people that are having or investigating extraterrestrials get visited by the men in black. What? That was the original concept. I, okay. Know nothing about this. Okay, cool. I mean, I know the movie. Love the first movie. Great movie. Love the second movie. I think the first one's the standout. Yeah. The smash hit. I mean, come on. Yeah. Will Smith. I mean. He did. And Tommy Lee. William Smith's killed it. <laughs> why why add s why william smith's and tommy lee jones's stop no my man rip torn was in that too that was his actual name rip torn who he was the guy he was like the gruff boss and he was oh also that's his name rip torn yeah he's a bad he was a he's dead now but he he's was a in, badass in dead dare dodgeball devil. dodgeball daredevil dare dead no. dead dodgeball bro no the comic one What's it called? You're tripping. The blind guy. Let's get back on track. Sorry. Tell me about these men. One of the earliest and certainly most infamous of Earth's reported men in black incidents occurred in Bustling Bridgeport, which I believe is in Connecticut. Okay. <laughs> According to ufologists, men in black popularly, 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 popularly identified as MIB are ultra-secret agents associated with the FBI, CIA, or an unnamed covert federal department which seeks out and thwarts those individuals probing too close to the truth behind UFOs. Some ufologists alarmingly postulate that the MIB are actually not of this Earth. Okay. What? So, so they're like fake being humans to stop humans from knowing about fake human aliens yeah or who knows there's so many theories what? and we're gonna get into them all right all right all right all right to begin mm-hmm. albert k bender was born in pennsylvania on june 16th 1921 bender served in the u.s army air force during world war ii from june 1942 until october 1943 as a stateside dental technician Oh, I was going to say, he's in the Air Force. He's probably seen some shit. Yeah. He's a dentist. A lot of teeth. He saw some teeth. After his honorable discharge from active service at Langley Field, Virginia, 
Bender relocated to Bridgeport with his mother, Ellen, and stepfather, Michael Ardolino. Okay. Okay. The family lived at 784 Broad Street. According to Bender, MIB arrived in Bridgeport during 1953. They appeared at his Broad Street home just a few hundred yards away from the main library. Okay. Okay. So first, I'm going to tell you a little bit. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Albert. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about some other instances of the MIB. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. So. Tell me about Al. Albert (laughs) was employed as a chief timekeeper at Acme Shear Co., the world's largest manufacturer of scissors. A chief timekeeper? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that means that he just keeps time. No. Yep. He's no. Chief. So he would run like, um, like hours. You know, keep people's hours, clock ins and clock outs and stuff like that. When it was still like an analog system, he was like the guy for that. Wow. And it was the largest manufacturer of scissors in the world. Huh. Huh. The factory was located. At... Cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> oh, sorry, late so on that one. <laughs> it's just in the city. Um, but perhaps it was Bender's sense of humor, but. And in an ironic salute to his job, Bender would fill his living space, which is in his his stepfather's house. He like lives in this attic in his stepfather's house. He would fill his room with uh, twenty clocks. I and, thought you were gonna say scissors. <laughs> no, because he was a timekeeper. Uh-huh. So every fifteen minutes, half hour, and on the hour, the clocks would go off. Twenty of them. What? Yeah. How fucking annoying. Get out of my attic. Yeah, but the cacophony of ticking timepieces and alarms were merely a small part of Bender's eccentricities. The timekeeper enjoyed his privacy living in the attic, and it had a small little living room off of the side, too. He was balling. Uh, <laughs> and it was a nice house. Uh, so he, when he would enter his 20s, he kind of added, like, skulls and shrunken heads and bizarre art that he would make and if people would ever come over and he's still living in this attic space and the ghostbusters come over when anyone would come over the key master right when anyone would come over he would like put on records of like scary and spooky sounds just to like add to the aesthetic the skeleton key okay you're doing great you're doing great so he was really into like witchcraft and the the unknown and all this kind of stuff so albert's unique appreciation for the supernatural coincided with a rash of well-publicized flying saucer sightings in the american west during the late teen late teen 1800s fucking hell the late 1900s the 1940s buddy whoa prompting bender to form one of america's First UFO organizations. In oh, 1952, buddy. For you. the Park City resident organized the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Wow. Yes. The fact that these are things just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. The IFSB, baby. World War One flying ace and CEO of Eastern Airlines, Eddie Rickenbacker, became an honorary member. Albert Einstein declined the information, the invitation. So they had 600 worldwide members at one point, and Bender was... How the, many? 600. Oh, they 1,600. That's still a lot. 600 is still pretty nice. Still, still a fucking lot. I mean, come on. Give my guy some credit here. He was the president. Of course he was. Yeah, and they were they were all kind of in on it together. Like they were, it was all, the idea was like, let's get together and learn yeah, more yeah, about yeah. 
spaceships. Did you know, you know who else is really like famous and really into like really, really into paranormal and UFOs that I didn't know about? Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. I'm going to talk about him. No. Yeah. I just learned so much about him the other day. He's amazing. He likes, he's, he's like ahead book- of like a bunch of that shit. Well, Dude. About and he just like regurgitates you this know, information. He, that's the reason for the Ghostbusters. Yeah, dude. It's because he his, his, interest his whole in family shit. is in the paranormal yeah. shit. And he knows it all backwards and forwards. I just learned about this yeah. like literally a week ago. That's so crazy. Yeah, he knows it all, man. Hmm. So yeah, they, so they put together this group. Uh, there's about 600 members and he's the president and they're just trying to figure it out. The headquarters was located in, uh, you know, his parents' house. Uh, yeah, with all them damn clocks. Yep, yep, yep. So another... One of the group's most enthusiastic members was Max Krengel, who also worked as a timekeeper at Acme Shear. He served as the group's vice president and assistant director. Okay. I bet his biggest pet peeve is when someone was late. Because he's a timekeeper? Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows about all the clocks if you're that late. A, that was a good joke, baby. <laughs> Keep those gems coming, buddy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so they st- him and this other guy, they started um a magazine called space review the newsletter shared space review the newsletter shared stories of ufo sightings and offered theories about the origins of these seemingly inexplicable objects so no sooner had bender which i also think is where bender the robot got his name from in futurama i think it's like one of the inspirations i I can't confirm that at all but i i wonder as you were saying that i was thinking in my head isn't there like a character named bender yeah yeah Bite my shiny metal ass. So no sooner had Bender commenced the his IFSB, the International uh, Flying Saucer business, uh, bad stuff starts happening to him. So as soon as he starts his um, organization, he starts having a lot of bad luck. Bad health, strange phone calls, telepathic messages hounded him. Uh-oh. These events coincidentally mirrored an outbreak of ufo sightings over southern connecticut in addition albert felt as if he was being watched november sounds like a little bit of paranoid schizophrenia yep well you know in november 1952 at a local movie theater bender realized a strange man with glowing eyes was observing him and while walking home along main street albert was shadowed on a separate occasion, late one night on Broad Street, Bender reported he was telepathically hypnotized and levitated. Whoa, buddy. But the worst phenomenon was the sickening odor filling his attic. It was the stench of burning sulfur. Okay. Oh. Which smells, you know, like, like rotten egg farts. That happens a lot in like paranormal. Yeah. When yeah. you smell like that, it's like bad, mm-hmm. bad, 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 mm-hmm. bad. Sequestered in his Broad Street home, Albert blended his UFO research with mental telepathy. To further his experiments... I always say that word wrong. Telepathy. I always say telepathy, Telepathy. and then I have to go back. Listen, I got mental telepathy. (laughs) To further his experiments, Bender prompted readers of Space Review... They got like 600 members. Yeah. ...with an audacious request. Memorize and silently recite on a particular day and time a form letter penned by Bender. So he wrote this letter to all of them and said... At one point, we're all going to say this at the same time. Okay. Out loud or in their head? In their silently recite. Okay. On a particular day and time. Okay. So it. Weird. 
Yeah, and so they were going to connect with alien life via the simultaneous thought projection. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Uh, simultaneous thought projection of hundreds of these members of this organization. Weird. They called it World Contact Day, or as Bender and they, you know, his his IFSB officially preferred C-Day. It commenced at 6 o'clock in the evening on March 15th, 1953. Everybody attempting to go from work. Yay. Right when you're getting home. (laughs) Time to talk to aliens. The noble. Damn, this five o'clock traffic. I gotta do my world contact. How am I gonna contact the aliens? I don't have my speech with me. Use your signal. (laughs) The noble telepathic message opened, calling occupants of the interplanetary craft, calling the occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. You are our friends. Sorry. (laughs) We are your friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that it went that way. He had a typo. And he, oh, fuck. He we got to start contact day over. He was using a typewriter and just didn't want to retype it then, so he just kept it in. I'm out of, I'm out of whiteout. <laughs> just over 20 years later, the Canadian progressive So nothing rock happened? Can I get to it? Oh, okay. <laughs> Can I get to it? You said that many times later. It t- you know how long it takes to throw your brain into space? <laughs> 600 people thinking the same thing at the same time? Sure. Have some respect for the process. My bad. Nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> Just over 20 years later, the Canadian progressive rock band Klaatu incorporated Bender's words into a haunting anthem. Yeah. So also, this is kind of cool. <laughs> that also, was the end of that. Yeah, they, they, I guess like they're, they're like, they have like a cool metal song and they're like, we are your friends. That's like the song at the end of mine. They mm-hmm. had a song, Tsunami, named mm-hmm. or written by, mm-hmm. about them. World Contact Day is still observed by UFO enthusiasts every March 15th. That was going to be my next question. Yes. March 15th. World mm-hmm. Contact Day. World Contact Day. Is there like a website where you go to pick, pick out what you have to read? It's that's probably the same message. Oh, probably. Yeah. With the so, same type of... Bender's message did not go over well. His rooms continued to fill with the smell of sulfur, and he oh, was telepathically ordered to cease delving into matters that were not of his concern. Okay. A yellow mist gathered in the attic. Undeterred, Bender announced... Maybe he left some eggs out, though. He probably... <laughs> I mean... You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Bender announced in the July issue of Space Review would hold a startling revelation... And it never appeared in print. What? Yes. They, they, he didn't print that issue. He didn't print the July issue. Huh. In 1953, in July 1953, Albert Bender was visited at his home by three men. Bender stated all of them were dressed in black clothes. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to the Hamburg style, which is like, you know, like a bloody one of them. No. Yep. Everyone knows. What? Yeah, it's like one of these like bowler hat looking things. Oh, the notorious like clockwork m- orange. Yeah, I think so. The notorious men in black, always in threes, made it clear to Bender that he was to immediately halt all UFO work. They communicated telepathically. Stop publishing. No. Before departing, the MIB confiscated copies of Space Review, and in their wake, a yellow fog materialized in the upstairs room of 784 Broad Street, which no longer stands. It's been, yeah, you know, industrially uh, rezoned. Again, the vile odor of sulfur wafted through the attic. Unnerved by their otherworldly presence, Albert shuddered that he was scared to death and was unable to eat for days. 
Jeez, probably because of that odor. The, it smells like egg farts up here, guys. <laughs> I'm having a hard time eating my bagel. <laughs> the 32-year-old timekeeper would be the recipient of repeated Men in Black visits. Okay. Not surprisingly, Bender's paranormal experiences were reported in local newspapers, but what might seem barred from the plot of a late-night horror movie, Bender's odyssey can easily be retraced at one of his familiar haunts, the downtown Bridgeport Public Library. Oh. Yeah, so Bender's accounts of the threats from the Men in Black became evident in the viewing when he began when viewing old microfilm pages of the Bridgeport Sunday Herald. Hmm. One Herald article reported the story under the headline Mystery Visitors Halt Research. <laughs> Bender is quoted that the three men in dark suits flash credentials showing them to be representatives of a higher authority. And they ask numerous questions about the IFSB, which is his yeah. international um, flying saucer business. Foosballs. Yep. Foosballs. <laughs> the Herald reported Lem M. Cullum interpreted these visitors as government officials. It was only years later when the passage of time apparently lessened his anxiety that Bender explained that the MIB were not of Earth. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Mm. We're getting there. The telepathic messages, headaches... His being stalked and, of course, the surreal warnings by authoritarians in black suits compelled Albert to shut down the International Flying Saucer Bureau a year oh, and a half damn. after founding it. The what final issue, yeah, yeah, a year and a half after founding the IFSB, the final issue of Space Review was released in October 1953. It included a cryptic message and warning: oh. "The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery." <laughs> the source is already known, but any information that this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to be very cautious. So, is that the, that's how that's, his, that's, that's the official. Yeah, that's how he sounded. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. Wow. It's a Bridgeport accent. What a bummer for that guy. Yeah. In 1956, fellow IFSB member Gray Barker penned the book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. In these pages, Barker detailed Albert Bri Albert's Bridgeport experiences and introduced the world to the evocatively menacing phrase, Men in Black. Okay. A decade after a brush with his, a decade after his own brush with aliens... Bender chronicled his strange personal story in a bizarre expose entitled Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Oh. Albert stressed how the dark-suited visitors were mind-manipulating silencers. Yeah. Had the flashy thing? <laughs> so he pretty much gives up at that point. He's like, I'm done. He relocated to California after publishing his autobiography, and he passed away at the age of 94. In March of 2016. So that's like... Wow, the, he lived long. He was he had a long, little life. So that's like the guy who is like kind of credited with the first kind of sightings of the men in black. Okay. But there have been many other sightings and encounters with these supposed men in black. All right. So I'm going to dump a couple... I'm going to dip my tit in a couple more cool. of them. Hopefully cool. I can learn to read I'm a little better. Yeah. Sit back and have a ham sandwich. Hey, get you a ham. You better go get me one. <laughs> so Dr... Dr. Herbert Hopkins was working as a consultant on a UFO case in Maine. One evening, he received a phone call from someone purporting to be an activist in the UFO community and asked him if he could visit Hopkins to discuss the case. Only minutes later, the man arrived. 
The man was wearing a black suit and black tie and had very unusual facial appearances with no hair or eyebrows and an extremely mm. pale figure. He was an albino with an alopecia. It happens. It happens. Wait, isn't... It's Slender Man, yeah. Isn't Stranger Things in Hopkins? Yeah, maybe. I think it is. But this guy is called Hopkins. It's not somewhere he is. This is a doctor. His name is Dr. Hopkins. Oh, my bad. Yeah. My bad. It'd be cool if you paid attention. I was. I just got... I just... Jeez, I, no, I heard bud. Hopkins and I got like, oh, wait. Yeah. Isn't Hopkins... It is Hopkins. Uh, Stranger Things. So the doctor... Aliens. The doctor, whose name is Hopkins... Sorry. Uh, ...began barking erratically the Whoa. minute the guy came in the house. No. After the bizarre visitor was finished questioning him about the UFO case... Shit got weirder. Weirder. So the man in black informed Hopkins that there were two coins in Hopkins' pocket, which was correct. So Dr. Hopkins did have these coins in his pocket. And asked him, the man in black asked him to remove one. So my guy does it, and he holds the coin. A shiny new penny. And he does it in the palm of his hand. He's got it in the palm of his hand. Okay. The MIB told Hopkins to watch the coin closely. After a few moments, the coin took on a silvery appearance because it was a penny it yeah. went so it turned so I'm, I'm listening i promise i've got i feel like i gotta clarify now <laughs> gee money jiminy cricket <laughs> after a few moments the coin took on a silvery appearance and then appeared to be going out of focus it then began to fade and eventually disappeared altogether the <gasps> mib not? informed hopkins that the coin would never it. be seen on this plane again he then inquired as to whether hopkins was familiar with alleged ufo abductee Barney Hill. You remember Barney Hill? Yeah. Betty and Barney? Oh, yeah. Hopkins replied that he had heard of Hill, but was under the impression that he had died in the not-too-distant past. How would, if he was that into you, like, that shit, how would he not have known about him? Yeah. The MIB informed Hopkins that that was correct. Barney didn't have a heart, said the MIB, just like you no longer have a coin. <gasps> the MIB gently suggested that Hopkins destroy any material that he had related to the UFO case. No! That's scary. So that's this dude from the Men in Black saying, I killed Barney Hill. I took his heart and beamed it up to my fucking Just planet. the same way I did to the coin. <gasps> Quit fucking around. Yee! Just strong-armed. A Men in Black strong-armed. You don't need a little bloopy thing when you can just scare the pants off of somebody. Seriously. Jesus. Where'd your finger go? Huh? Yeah. Stop talking about it. So dude burns all the files of the case. Oh my God. Yeah. And he had a, he had a bunch of phone troubles and stuff after that, but it was he was done. He never got into He was done with ufology after that. Damn. Yeah. So this next one is called the Maori Island Incident. Harold Dahl and his son were salvaging logs on a fishing boat when they spied six donut-shaped crafts flying in the air above them. The crafts drop molten waste onto the lake, which allegedly kills Dahl's dog and injures his son. A few days later. Whoa. Yeah. So they like dump. There's a bunch of spaceships flying over them. They, They dump some shit on them and it fucks everybody up. I killed the dad and injured killed, the son? Killed the dog. Oh, the dog. You would have rather the dad been dead. Yeah, oh, but it, yeah. And it fucked the son up. So a few days later, after talking about the affairs with his boss and friends, he was visited by a mysterious man dressed in all black. Mm. The man urged him not to discuss the encounter. Not long after, he was visited by several Air Force agents who said they, they were on a mission to gather information. Dahl's story definitely got the attention of various law enforcement agencies in the United States, leading the FBI to write a report on the matter. Not long after his encounter with the man in black, Dahl claimed the whole thing was a hoax, 
but recanted years after having allegedly made the first confession under duress. What? Uh-huh. Jeez. Men in Black out here strong-arming, bro. Yeah. So this next one, okay, so have you ever seen that picture of that little girl and there's like a weird spaceman behind her? Have you ever know. seen it? It's like one of those like crazy like cursed images. Guy claims it's like him and his kid and it's just like a plain field. And he takes a picture and there's like a fucking spaceman, like a cosmonaut in it. I don't know. It's crazy. You have it? Do I'm about to picture? tell you about it. You yeah, picture? but it didn't come out right because I'm, oh, I'm let trying me, to save let me ink. There's like a spaceman behind her in this in this picture. Uh, what's she holding? Is that ice cream or flowers? Flowers. <laughs> flowers. What? Well, it printed weird. She's holding those ice cream. <laughs> So Jim Templeton was shocked to discover this figure in the background of a photo of his daughter. So there's like literally like in this picture, there's a dude standing like right here, like right over her head. Oh, wait, I have to Google it. Yeah. Uh, So the figure, the film was verified as authentic by Kodak and Templeton's story went public. So it's essentially like there's like a literal spaceman right behind her head. Okay. And nobody had any idea where it came from. A few you know, after having it, the story went public he was visited by government agents who referred to themselves as number nine and number ten. Ew. They demanded to see the site of the... Fo- Ew. Wait, yeah. I'm sorry. I just pulled the picture up. Yeah, that's going to be the one for the post, I think. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh-uh, buddy. We'll add it to our Insta. You can see it. And it's, like, not there in another picture that he clearly took, like, right before Right it. before, <gasps> yeah. Okay, sorry. I had to look at it. That's creepy. It's super creepy. So these dudes, they refer to themselves number nine, number ten. And he's like, you're going to take us to this place and um they questioned him about it when templeton told them he didn't see the figure personally the men became angry and stormed out of the field never to be seen again what templeton was later contacted by two employees at a missile launch pad in australia who claimed that they saw two figures that resembled the man in his daughter's photo on launch pad security footage what? Apparently, the missiles at that site in Australia had been produced only 20 miles away from the field where Templeton took no! the photo. Some that's weird creepy. lost astral projection shit. Oh, that's so weird. So weird, yeah. bud. Paul Miller was returning home from a hunting trip when they saw yeah, when he saw a luminous disc in the sky. The disc landed in an empty field and the two hu- and two humanoids emerged from the craft Ooh. miller fired his gun at them <gasps> whoa buddy and be- yeah right that's how you say hello where you're that's from? aggressive damn it's just a field man it's a public field bro <laughs> and he believed to have injured one when he <gasps> fled down a rural road to his car however in that moment he realized he had lost time it was almost three hours later than when he had first encountered the craft. <gasps> so in his mind... Didn't that happen at, with Barn, Betty and Barney? Yeah. That's like a common thing that happens. Yeah. Lose, he's like, pew, pew, turns around to run three hours later. Whoa. You know what I'm saying? That's fucking creepy. maybe they beam, they got him for that yeah. time. He shrugged it off and went back no. to his Air Force job oh. the next day. No big. However, upon entering work, he was immediately confronted by three men in black suits. <gasps> they told Ooh. him that they had his file. Despite having told nobody about the event, the men said that they knew all about it and mentioned that the encounter would be best forgotten. So Paul said, they seem to know everything okay. about me, where I worked, my name, and everything else. Miller said they also asked questions about his experiences as if they already knew the answers. I'm always still curious about these people coming out with these stories if they know that those 
people yeah. like when you meet together they'd come back at, I'm good. after you i'm good like i wouldn't say anything because alien be afraid mafia dude come back after me again no way making that coin beam up Mm-mm. i'm not talking about it Mm-mm. ever again. never again never again Danny Gordon was a radio personality who became interested in a flurry of Wythe County UFO sightings. Multiple people across the county claimed to have seen bizarre objects in the sky, and Gordon decided to investigate. Gordon became obsessed with getting photos of the objects, including one time where an entire school bus of students saw the UFOs flying over a shopping mall as Gordon took photos. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, that's something to, to think about. When so like, many people see something. Entire school with a oh, kid. my God, yeah. If, like, one of them saw it and, like, one of them would, was making it up, they wouldn't all be like, no, yeah, we saw it. I mean, you know. Yeah. However, yeah. after this, strange things began happening to Gordon. He received a phone call from a man who claimed to be ex-military and warned him that his research could cost him everything and urged him to stop for his family's sake. Damn. Gordon was also Correct. interviewed by two men in black suits who claimed to work for a magazine publication. Not long after the interview, Gordon realized all of his photos were missing. He contacted the magazine for information, and they claimed to have never heard of him, much less commissioned an article about him. What? Uh-huh. Not long after, Gordon suffered a heart attack, <gasps> and his doctor warned him that all this research and stress was jeopardizing his health. Gordon gave up the story and was never bothered. No, those again. aliens were squeezing at his damn heart. They were getting they, like, hell you yeah. Do they it were. again, and we're taking we're it going, up. We're beaming it this up. Is your last chance, You're buddy. You're gonna be barneyed. Yeah. Okay. UFO researcher Jack Robinson and his wife Mary began to experience extremely strange events as they pursued more alien and UFO-related research. They would come home to find their house rummaged and looked through and their UFO files disturbed. No. Mary also began to notice a strange man in a black suit and hat staring up at their apartment. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, so this is another picture. I don't have it on me right now, but we'll put it on the Instagram. It's like somebody took a picture of this guy. It's a super old say, picture. Yeah, I was going to say, did you see what like, year it was last This one's an old story. Old, this yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. No ring doorbells. <laughs> yeah. So she she brings it up to some, like one of her friends who drove over and saw that she was talking about, see what she was talking about. This guy is called Tim Green Beckley, snapped a photo of the man, which is believed to be the most ironclad pieces of proof wow. of the men. Which literally, it's just a guy in a black suit, like, looking up at a window, which could be but arguably, but... It's a I man mean, in black staring up at a window of people who are very into I alien mean, research. That's creepy as fuck. Come on, and... And the creepiest thing to me about was, like, with the old photos, those are... They're not, not doctored, easily yeah. to be just... Yeah, to be doctored. Yeah, dude. Stressful. That's so creepy. Stressful. And lastly, actor Dan Aykroyd's yes! show is shut down by the Men in Black. His Canadian show? Dan Aykroyd has come forward with the story about how he was taping a show about the paranormal. He stepped out to take a phone call from Britney Spears, who what? was asking him to appear on Saturday Night Live what? with her. When he noticed a black Ford parked across the street, a tall man stepped out from the Ford and stared him down. I think what's more frightening is that he just got a call from Britney Dan Aykroyd. Spree- got a yeah, call Britney, from Britney Spears. Spears. She's an alien. Uh, so this guy gets out of the car, staring him down. Ackroyd turns away for a moment, then turns back to find the man and the car had completely vanished. Whoa. After he finished his phone call, he returned to the studio to learn that his show had been canceled and he was <gasps> ordered to stop filming immediately. Shut up. Some doubt his claim, but Ackroyd says he knows what he saw and maintains that there was some kind of connection between these men in black and the end of his paranormal show. 
Wow. I, ju- I had just learned. This and, was like in Canada or something. Yeah, and I had like a sub note that was like, he knows everything about otherworldly yeah. and paranormal. I just learned about that. He actually believes that aliens already exist here like they live here and that yeah they don't they They're they hate it. us and that they don't want to be here because like th- like for instance there was something about him saying that like the aliens saw 9-11 and they were like we saw like earthly people take their biggest equipment and like hit the biggest one of the biggest you know sure. buildings and kill so many of their own people why would we want to be here and like they don't want to sure. be here and yeah. stuff so it's like yeah, he knows. What? Yeah, and he knows it all backwards and forth. There's he went on to the Joe Rogan experience, kind of re- not recently now. But oh, really? And just like it, it just talks for hours and hours and hours oh about all this stuff. Yeah, he knows it all, man. But yeah, that's kind of the primer on Men that's in Black. Crazy. Yeah, and there's a bunch of like videos and pictures. I'm gonna and stuff be you googling that shit all night after we but fucking get done. Sp- Spooky, bud. Yeah, I didn't know it was a real, based off of a real thing. Yeah, so you, Even th- there's the like, lightest. there's like, I'm this... surprised Dan Aykroyd didn't have a hand in that movie, bro. He, she, he might. you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, that's one of those things that people put out to like defer people's ideas away from it. Like, oh, the Men in Black's a movie. It's not a thing. Like Star, like aliens and stuff. That's all fantasy. That can't be real. And it's like one of the ideas is like that. Those, those experiences those films that stuff exists because it is real right and it's a way to like well it's like veil what, people's D- mentality dan Aykroyd came up with ghostbusters yeah exactly as well as i mean the whole thing about the men in black potentially being aliens as well like are they yeah. aliens working for themselves are they aliens working for the government well, they're like having are they work- hybrids they have aliens like, working for them in men in black yeah in the movie are they fucking people you know? from the future with high tech that and make they have look those, like that it's you crazy because they have the alien like in the movie yeah. they have like the people who like are in human form yeah absolutely that's so crazy mm-hmm. i had no idea based on real stuff yeah wow wow well good job you too bud oh my god how long is this long enough sorry guys but you know we're not sorry enjoy yourselves enjoy hopefully you had a good time that was really good thanks man that was intriguing. I had no idea. What were you? There was something about my story that sparked your interest. You your... said just the two of us, and Will oh, Smith did the cover weird. of just the two of us. Yeah. Uh, I thought it would give too much away if I said what it no, was. No, I though. would not have put that together at just all. Just the two of us. <laughs> we can podcast if we try. <laughs> no, that was you good. Wow. So hopefully those were some two crazy ass stories for you guys to enjoy. Yeah, man, and we'll see you guys. Uh, you know, email us at uh, we drink and we know things podcast at Gmail. Tell us what you think if you've had your own alien experiences. Oh fuck yeah, I would love if you're to hear a that. We'll twin have you on and the show. you speak your own weird language. I don't know. Keep that shit to yourselves. Let us know what um, you think. <laughs> yeah, follow us on all the social meds. Leave us a, a review. review, please. We love that shit. Hit please, us with an email. Please, write please. us a review. Subscribe. We'll s- yeah, we'll see you guys for Florida Man Friday. Thank you all so much, man. Thanks for listening. Uh, bye. Bye.